and let's uh, just come to the Lord and bring our needs and our concerns before Him now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. And Lord Jesus, we come to you now as your flock. You're our shepherd. You're the one who cares for us and gives us everything that we need. All of our life resides in you. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you as your flock now to bring our needs before you, asking that you would feed us and care for us. Lord, different ones of us have come this morning with different burdens on our hearts. Lord, some of us are weighed down to the point of, of, of breaking this morning. And I pray, Good Shepherd, that you would reach out and sustain your flock this morning, that you would encourage the brokenhearted, that you would heal those who are sick. We pray, God, that, that you would sustain your people. Lord, you are our life, and we depend upon you. We know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we want to come to you this morning to be sustained by your word. We pray that in a few moments as we study Proverbs, that your word would just fill us with life and hope, that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that when we open up the Bible, we are looking into the face of Jesus as the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us in the pages of Scripture. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would become more holy. I pray that you would give us victory over sin in our lives. Lord, overcome our unbelief, we pray. We pray that through the Holy Spirit's power we would overcome attitudes toward others and things in our heart that are just displeasing to you. We do pray as we sang in that last song that your word would just search us, Lord, that you would give us a spiritual CAT scan. And you would search us, Lord, for those hidden things that are displeasing to you. And Lord, you would make us a more holy, obedient people. Lord, just grab our wild uh, hearts and wrestle them down into submission to you, we pray. God, help us to be a people who are filled up with holy love for you and for one another. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people who are gathered here. Would you pray for other churches on the south shore that are gathering this morning? Lord, we pray for Wollaston Church of the Nazarene, for North River Community Church. Lord, thank you for Plymouth United Methodist Church, for First Baptist Church of Weymouth. God, and other churches, we just pray that, that the Bible would be opened this morning, that you would meet with your flock all over the South Shore and encourage those congregations. And Lord, we pray for more churches. God, I pray that every town on the South Shore would come to have a vibrant gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church in it. Lord, we just pray that you would, you would raise up uh, people all over, that you would gather your people into churches, Lord, and that your gospel would go forward in greater power. And Lord, now as we open up your word, as we study Proverbs, we pray that you'd speak to us. We pray that you'd convince us of your sufficiency in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we invite any kids here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And with the rest of you, open up your uh, Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. We can really concentrate this week. It's so cold, no one wants to go outside. The Patriots have a bye week. So we can all focus on the Word of God this morning. It's great. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. If you're using a pew Bible, and maybe you feel a little uh, rusty on Proverbs, it's page 655. Page 655 in the Pew Bible. I'm kind of picking up where 
Seth left, left off last week. Wasn't that a great message Seth brought last week? I just was so blessed by that. You know, he's really grown this summer through his sabbatical and preaching. I'm just so encouraged. Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Here's the question I want to pose to you this morning, the questions I want us to wrestle with together. And the question is, it's really simple, it's kind of a fundamental question, but the question is this, is this book enough? Is the scripture, is the Bible sufficient to give us what we need to live the Christian life and to be saved, and to live as God's people in a modern world? Is this ancient book enough to teach us how to be God's people in a modern world, or do we need to supplement it with something else? And, you know, as I ask that question, those of us here who would self-identify as Bible-believing Christians, you know, we probably, in an almost Pavlovian way, say, yes. You know, we just respond, well, of course, of course it is. But, yeah, we say that now in church when we're singing all these songs, but... You know, when you come to the trials of life and when the, the heat gets turned up and there's problems in relationships or you're in conflict with someone at work or home or church or you know, there's a health issue or whatever, whatever all the things that happen to us in life, then the question is, is this book enough? Like, that's when it gets hard. That's when I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah, the Bible's good. I, I like the Bible, but maybe I need this too to sustain me and support me. Um, is the Bible enough for the church? Does it give us what we need to be the church, to be uh, an effective church in this modern world? Or do we need something in addition to, to make the church effective and to be a true church? Or looking beyond our own personal lives and beyond the walls of the church, so to speak, out to the whole world, we know that Jesus has given us a commission. He's told us that as His disciples, we're supposed to be taking His love and His message to the ends of the earth. And we look at that task and we go, really? I mean, can we? I have a hard enough time just you know, keeping my own life in order, let alone taking the gospel to the whole world. That just seems so daunting to me. Uh, do we have the resources? Is this gospel enough to bring the kingdom of God to pass? Or do we need lots of other things to help it out? Because you know, it is kind of an old book and this is the modern world and, and that sort of thing. You see, I think uh, evangelical Christians, uh, like many of us w- would call ourselves, we are quick to affirm the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. We believe that oh yeah, it's the Word of God. We say that. But there's another doctrine of the Bible that, you, that theologians often identify that sort of goes along with inspiration. It's the doctrine of sufficiency. That the Bible is not only the Word of God, but it's sufficient. It's enough. It gives us what we need for living the Christian life and for being the church and for reaching the world. And I think that's where the crisis of faith is in the evangelical church today when it comes to the Bible. Is this book really enough? You know? And so we look at verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs, and verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs are verses about the sufficiency of Scripture. It says in verse 5, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So we have two verses Uh, both of which I think are dealing with the sufficiency or the adequacy of the Bible for our lives. But they're just kind of coming at it from different angles. 
So verse 5 is kind of like from the positive angle, that this is what we should do, this is what God's Word is. And then verse 6 is more the negative angle, like this is therefore what you shouldn't do because God's Word is sufficient. But they're both talking about the same thing, that the Bible is enough. So let's just look at verse 5, the first one. It says, every word of God is flawless. And I have to tell you that as I was kind of studying this passage and translating it, I became more and more dissatisfied with that translation. I don't think flawless is the right word. You know, when I was looking at the Hebrew word and kind of digging into it and looking how the word's used elsewhere, it's really a word that's used in metallurgy or in smelting. Uh, so it's the idea that you take gold or silver, you put it in a furnace, you heat it up, and of course what happens when you smelt an, an ore is that the, the pure ore is you know, separates from the dross and from the impurities that contaminate it. And so that's the word here. It's a metallurgy smelting kind of word. Uh, it's the word for refining. And because of that idea of refining, the word came to also mean to test something or to try something to see if it's true and if it's real. And so I can see how this version of the Bible translated it flawless because it seems to be the idea is therefore it's flawless. But I don't think it's like the basic idea. I think we're kind of missing a step in between. So maybe you could translate verse 5, every word of God is tried and true. It's been tested. It's been put through the furnace. And you can count on it because God's word has been tested and shown to be true again and again. And, you know, when I thought about it that way, I was like, yeah, that's really the case. You know, I was thinking about all the different ways God's word has been tested down through the centuries. Uh, It has been put under the microscope. There is no other book in all of human history that has been subjected to the kind of ruthless scrutiny and skepticism the way the Bible has been. What other book? have people attacked and put underneath the microscope to test. And yet it just keeps buoying up. It's like wave after wave of skepticism hits it. And we're like, oh no, the Bible's sunk now. Splash! And it just goes bloop and it buoys up. And again, another test comes. Uh, governments have sought to eradicate the Bible. Whether it was the, you know, some of the ancient Roman emperors who sought to burn all the Bibles in their empire, or modern day communist dictatorships that tried to outlaw the Bible's in their countries. But the more you try to beat it down, the more it just pops up and spreads. It's more widely read today than it ever has been. It's the most uh, published book ever. It's being translated into thousands of languages even as we speak. Regular, normal Americans are dedicating their lives to go to third world countries and live in deprivation so they can translate the Bible. Like, what is wrong with these people? It's because this book is so amazing and it changes life. It's sufficient. It's been tested. It's been tried. The uh, French philosopher Voltaire in the 18th century uh, said his famous uh, saying that he said, within a hundred years, the Bible would be non-existent. Well, uh, it's now 2007 and Voltaire is non-existent, but uh, the Bible continues. In an ironic uh, historical twist, uh, less than 50 years after Voltaire died, his house was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society (laughs) and was turned into a printing house for Bibles. You know, and just one of those little funny twists of fate. You know, I was thinking about the Bible being tested and being uh, tried. One of the areas, this is just a for instance, I'm sure you could pick lots of examples, but one of the little areas I was, my mind was kind of led toward was the whole area of archaeology. That over time, you know, especially the last 200 years as modern archaeology has flourished, what it's done is just to, to place the Bible in a historical world that's real. You know, in the 1800s, there was a young British archaeologist named William Ramsey. 
and uh, he's, his professors had told him that the Bible is not historical, it's just a bunch of stories. And so he went out to prove that. He, he said, yeah, this Bible is a bunch of baloney. So what he did was he took the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and he went to Asia Minor, or what's today called Turkey, because that's where a lot of the book of Acts takes place. There's a lot of missionary journeys up there. And so he said, I'm just going to show how ridiculous this is. And so using, in a sense, the Bible as his map, he went to site after site to dig around and prove that it's not true. And what he found, much to his consternation, was that site after site confirmed the people, places, names, titles, inscriptions. And as the evidence mounted, he was so overwhelmed by it that he became a Christian. Because it just, he's like, I can't believe this. This is really uh, accurate. I had an experience of this this summer. Uh, some of you know the summer I went to, um, I told some of you this, but I went to England with my wife. We had our 15th wedding anniversary. I'd never been to England, and we stopped off in London. We went to the British Museum because I wanted to see the black obelisk of Shalmanassar III, which I'm sure if you've been to England, you made a beeline for the black <laughs> obelisk of Shalmanassar III. Shalmaneser III was uh, one of the ancient uh, kings of Assyria in the 9th century, and they had this, found this black obelisk. And I, I stood there in front of the obelisk. I could have reached out and touched it, but the guards probably would have jumped me, so I didn't. But I just, I'm looking at it. It's right in front of me. And there in the obelisk is an, an engraving with King Shalmaneser the Assyrian sitting on his throne and another king paying homage before him. And in Akkadian, on the inscription, it says that it's King Jehu of Israel bowing before him. And I was like, so in other words, the King Jehu from Second Kings that I've studied in my Bible classes, that I've read about in the Bible, archaeologists go to northern Iraq, they dig up this black obelisk, and there's a picture of him. I'm like, this is, you know, I've just had this kind of religious moment. I'm like, wow, there it is. Um, you know, and not that we need archaeology to f- prove the Bible, but... It is. It's, you know, this is unlike uh, the Koran, which is uh, largely a collection of sayings and teachings. You know, this, is, this book is a history. It's a narrative of people, places, times, events, battles, kings, uh, titles, all kinds of things like that. And, and so archaeologists can go dig around and they find all of these things. I mean, it's a really an amazing thing. Uh, just a little side note, a little uh, digression here, but I don't know. Some of you are kind of into that and you're sort of history buffs. And, and that's something that, that's kind of a question mark for you as far as the Bible. Or maybe you know someone who is and you want to give them a Christmas present. Can I just recommend something to you that I've found? It's called the Archaeology Study Bible. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's really cool. I got a free one, so I don't know how much they cost, but I got one for free, but it's really cool. What they did is essentially they just took the Bible, these archaeologists, and then they wrote a bunch of articles related to topics that relate to events in the Bible. So, you know, as you're reading about the fall of Jericho, you can read all the archaeological evidence for Jericho being destroyed. I mean, it's a really neat book. So if you know someone who's into that kind of thing. People, this is why when things like the Da Vinci Code come out, you don't have to freak out. You know, it's a page turner. You know, it's a fun book. But it's not going to sink the Bible. (laughs) You know, after the Da Vinci Code came out, there was this flurry of about 30 books came out disproving the historical claims of the Da Vinci Code. Why? Because it's so easy. You know, it was just, it's really bad scholarship in the Da Vinci Code. And so, you know, don't get freaked out when those books come out. Because a hundred years from now, nobody will remember the Da Vinci Code, nobody will read the Da Vinci Code, and the Bible will be bigger than ever. It's just, it happens. Like, every Christmas... 
And every Easter, it's just like, oh, here it comes. Time Magazine or Newsweek or 60 Minutes or 2020 do a special, you know, where new scholarship proves that Jesus of the Bible really wasn't the real Jesus. And, you know, it's like every year you just wait for it. Like, here it comes. Here comes the Jesus issue. Yeah, there it is. And you get all these scholars, you know, translation, unbelieving liberal scholars. That's who they are. That's who they interview. They don't interview great evangelical scholars. And they just, you know, tear apart the Bible. And then the next year, there's another issue. And last year's theories are out the window because there's a new theory. And these theories, they come wave after wave, washes over the Bible, testing it and trying it. And the Bible just keeps bloop, booing up, bloop, every time. I like what... Uh, Bernard Ram said, I found this quote, he said, he was a biblical scholar, he said, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. (laughs) Or as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And they still haven't. And they still continue to spread. You know, the Bible's on the upswing right now, uh, globally speaking. You know, maybe not here in New England, but around the world, it, it's, it's taking the world by storm. Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa, the church is just, it's like a virus. And it's not because the church is this well-organized evangelistic machine. <laughs> it's just God's Word. <laughs> Spreading like a virus. It's such a beautiful thing. Um, But you know, it's not just that the Bible has been tested, going back to Proverbs 5. Every word of God is flawless. It's been tested. It's tried. But it's not just that it's been tested by archaeology or by skeptics in the university. But more importantly, if you look at verse 5, it has been tested and proven in the lives of God's people. That's why we hold it dear, not because of some arguments in the universities, We hold it dear because we have tested it in our lives. We have gone through the fires of affliction as God's people. And when everything else in our life was burning down, there was one thing that didn't burn. And it was the promises in this book that we found to be true. Look at verse 5. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. God is a shield Uh, I thought we were talking about the Bible. Are we talking about God? Yeah, both. Because if you honor the Bible, you're honoring God. If you trust the Bible, you're trusting God. God's Word is the expression of who God is. And so by trusting God's Word, we are trusting in God and taking refuge in Him. You know, I think of Jesus in the wilderness. He was being tested. He was hungry. For 40 days, He hadn't eaten. He was alone in the desert. No one was there to support him and encourage him and to say, attaboy, keep going. He was just out, deprived, exposed in the wilderness to the elements. And then after 40 days, after being ground down physically and emotionally, then Satan comes at him and in his moment of weakness when he has nothing left. And there is Jesus completely exposed and empty in the wilderness with the prince of darkness attacking him personally. And what does Jesus fall back on as His sufficiency in the wilderness? The Word of God. He starts fighting back at Satan, just quoting Scripture. That's all He has left. 
You know, he's totally hungry and empty. But he just, you know, Satan comes at him with these tests, and Jesus says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Honor the Lord your God and worship him only. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy in every one of those cases. And he's resisting, he's resisting. The word of God is his sufficiency. And that's what we as Christians have found is that God's word is enough. It sustains us in our trials. You know, what's your shield and what's your refuge? When things go haywire for you, what do you find yourself running to without even realizing it? You know, do you, is it your money? Shopping? Is that what you kind of like, or whatever, this is what my confidence is in? Well, at least I know I've got this in the bank. Or is your confidence, you know, do you go to the bottle? Do you go to uh, friends? Do you, do you rely upon, you start calling people and, and talking to people on the phone or shooting out emails? You know, what do you do when, when things are just falling apart? And the thing about all those things is they can fall apart too. But ultimately as Christians, we need to come back to and build our lives upon the one thing that doesn't fall apart, that's been tested by the fire, is the promises of God's Word. This is the challenge. So, you know, when, when things are financially tough, do we go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things, meaning your physical needs, maybe not every want and dream, but your physical needs, will be taken care of. Do I really believe that? Yeah, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, that's a great verse. Yeah. But like when you're in the furnace, do I believe and do I lean on God's Word? When, when you're in a conflict with somebody, and you're at odds with somebody. Do I go back to God's Word which tells me to forgive? Which tells me to love? Do I go back to God's Word which says, you know, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everybody? Do I go back to God's Word where it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? And I'm like, ah, isn't there a verse in here about, you know, give them a good pop in the mouth? I mean, you know, there's got to be something about, you know, <laughs> fighting back. And you know, maybe some of those stories about the Israelites killing the, you know, People in Cana. I mean, there's got to be something. Forgive and love and respond with graciousness to those who attack you. Turn the other cheek. If someone asks for your cloak, you know, shirt, give them your cloak as well. Like, what? Is God's word enough for my life in this world? And so that's the challenge. I just want to say it's sufficient. God's word is sufficient. It is a refuge. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. My, I was asking my son this week. He, for some reason, my son this week just remembered this story that he told me about. And it just sort of came out of the blue, you know, coincidentally. But he said, Dad, remember that one time? And, and he reminded me of this story when he was a little kid, uh, you know, just a little guy, and the power went out in our house. And he was brushing his teeth. It was night. And I think it was like the first time he had really experienced a power outage. So he was back in the bedroom brushing his teeth. And, he, you know, just a little guy. So he didn't ever experience that before. And he just started freaking out. He was like, ah! He was running around the bathroom. And he was bumping into doors. And, you know, bouncing off walls. And, and uh, you know, just kind of bumping into things. He's like, Dad, ah, help me! Help me! And so, you know, I just spoke, you know, into the house. And I was like, son, just stand still. And so he, he said, I remember that. I just, I just froze. And then, you know, I found my way through the house. And I got him. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, you know, that's how it is. When everything goes dark, all we have is the voice of our Father. We just have the word of our Father saying, stand still. 
Psalm chapter 16, be still and know that I am God. And we just got to stop freaking out. <laughs> and just stop and say, God is my God. Christ poured out His blood as a covenant sacrifice. I am His child. And I know it because, you know, the Bible tells me so. And do I believe in the moments of trials that God loves me, even though nothing else in my life seems to indicate that He's loving me right now? But I know He loves me because I trust in this. This is sufficient for guiding me in times of difficulty. So the Bible is our sufficiency. It helps us in trials. But we need to move on to verse 6. You see verse 5 there. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So in verse 6 we have another take. It's a negative. They're both about the sufficiency of God's Word. It's just that verse 5 is the positive and verse 6 is, is kind of the warning or the prohibition. So the positive is because God's Word is tried and true, because it's sufficient, Therefore, take refuge in Him. Put your trust in God, especially in times of trial. The negative is, because God's Word is sufficient, don't add to His words. Don't play math with God's words. Don't add, don't subtract, don't multiply, don't divide. Just go with what it says. Um, So I thought that was interesting. Don't add to His words. Because you usually think that to deny God's Word, you have to just take away from it. Like, that's what skeptics do. Oh, there wasn't the King Jehu. Or, you know, these things really didn't take place. They're saying what it isn't. They, they negate it. But another way to deny the sufficiency of God's Word, and the, I think the way we as Christians do it, is we try to add to it. We say, oh yeah, the Bible's God's Word. Yeah, I believe the Bible. And I need this too. And so we deny through supplementing rather than through subtracting. It's kind of an interesting thing. But you get this command. Don't add to God's words. It's enough. You don't have to supplement it with something else. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God of your fathers is giving to you. Here we go. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Or Revelation chapter 22, the very end of the Bible, one of the last verses in the Bible says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which is described in this book. And that's our temptation, is to add to Scripture. Like, yeah, I believe Scripture. Yeah, I believe the Bible. The Bible's my book. You know, I'm a Christian. You know, but I need the Bible and something else. Because it's kind of an old book, and I'm, I'm a modern person. I live in the modern world. So, I mean, I can't really be enough. I need a little something to help bridge the gap. I need to supplement it in some way. And this is, I think, the error that we tend to fall into as Christians without even realizing it. It certainly was the error of the Pharisees. If you go way back to the time of Jesus, the Pharisees affirmed the Old Testament. That wasn't the problem. It's that in addition to the Old Testament, it was the Old Testament and the teachings of the elders and the rabbis. And so they had the Old Testament, but then they built up around it just a series of, uh, of interpretations and rabbinic writings that had the same authority as Scripture in their minds. And so they 
They denied God's word, not by denying it, but by adding to it. So, for instance, uh, turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. I'll just give you a for instance. Matthew chapter 15, it's on page 971. Matthew chapter 15, page 971. Just going to read the first seven verses. But here's a story where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. And what's the point of the issue? They're adding things. And Jesus calls them on it. It says, verse, chapter 15, verse 1, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now that command is not in the Old Testament for all believers. It was for the priests, but not for everybody. But the Pharisees said, well, you know, maybe everyone should do it just to be on the safe side. And that idea then became law and became tradition. And so if you didn't do that, then they considered you a bad Jew. So Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And he gives them a for instance. Verse 4, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. So that's the Bible. Honor your father and mother. But you say in your tradition that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help may otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He doesn't have to honor his father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And so, this is something that happens. Whenever you add something to the Word of God as necessary, inevitably, you know, if you say it's the Bible and the traditions taught by men or whatever it is, inevitably, the tradition or whatever you added sneaks up and becomes more important than the Scriptures. It, just, it always seems to happen. Once you put something there, it just goes... and it pops over every time. So that eventually, even the teachings of the elders overruled like a plain common sense reading of the Old Testament. You see this in the cults. Um, you know, in the Mormonism. It's the Bible and the Book of Mormon. It's the Bible and the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower. There's always something that's and that then becomes authoritative so that you can't just read the Bible for what it is. You have to read it through the interpretive lens of the watchtower or whatever uh, the case may be. And it's not just you know, the Pharisees and the cults. I mean, it's all of us. This is our natural human tendency, isn't it? This was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, okay, here's my word. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You can have all the fruit in the garden, but not that one. And they said, okay, I want all the fruit in the garden and that one. You know, we always want that and. And that and sinks the whole thing. And so this is a Christian problem too. You see it in all different branches of the Christian church. I think you see it to a degree in Roman Catholicism. Um, you know, I, I like to read the, uh, and this may sound funny, but I like to read the, the Catholic Catechism. <laughs> that sounds funny to the Baptist. I, I, some really good stuff in there. You know, whenever I read the, the, the 94 Catechism, I, I find all this stuff in there that just confirms the historic faith. You find the Trinity affirmed in there. And Jesus is confirmed as rising from the dead. He died for our sins. You know, the the historic Orthodox faith is in there. But then the thing I always choke on when I read the Catechism is all the ands. That's the problem. It's all the extra stuff that's put on top of it. And so, yeah, the Bible is proclaimed as infallible in the Catechism. So it's the Bible and the infallibility of the Pope. 
See, that's brought up there like that. Or it's salvation through faith in Christ and you need to be baptized and take sacraments and do cooperating grace that leads to good works. It's heaven and hell and purgatory. It's Jesus and Mary and the saints. And, and so what I, I think hampers it are all those ands. Or even take Mary. Mary's a wonderful biblical character that I think young women should seek to emulate in her faith and obedience and purity. But it's not just Mary. It's Mary and the Immaculate Conception and the Perpetual Virginity and Pray the Hail Mary. And so all the ands you know, are what give it, take the pure doctrine and give it a hard time. Um, that's why the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation was not the word and. It was another word. Sola. And sola means alone. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. It was that alone that was the important part of the Reformation. That salvation was sola fide. It was through faith alone, by grace alone. So the way a person is saved is through, this is how you can be saved and be right with God and have eternal life, is through faith in Jesus alone. You don't need sacraments. You don't need to be baptized in any church. You know, you don't need all these other things. It's faith in Christ alone. And that word sola makes all the difference. You know, do you want to understand the Protestant Reformation? You know what it was? There's a bunch of Catholics who just started really digging into their Bibles and then saying, you know what, whatever this says is what I'm going to go by. And then they just started analyzing their church. And they said, okay, that, yep, that's here. That's not here. That's really not here. Those indulgences, they got to go. And they got, that's all it was. It's really, it's a back to the Bible kind of movement. But lest you think I'm just here beating up on Catholics, you know, I, you know, I'm not a Catholic basher. Those of you who know my preaching, you know that's not my style. It's not a Catholic problem, it's a human problem. We all want to add to God's Word. You see it in the Protestant church just as badly. You go to, uh, some of you have been involved in Pentecostal or charismatic churches. There's often an and that slips in. It's the Bible and revelations, dreams, prophecies, tongues, words of knowledge, impressions. And they slip in. And, and you know, they just kind of sneak up like that. And if you ask your typical uh, charismatic Pentecostal, is God's Word authoritative and sufficient? They'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course it is. But when you listen to what's actually taking place, and this is a generalization, but very often, the excitement in the church and the thing people want to talk about and the thing that gets sent out in emails and discussed are not explications of God's Word. It's this prophecy. And then this person had this prophecy. And then I went to this other conference and someone had the same prophecy halfway across the country. And you know, oh, and then God's saying something. And so all the focus gets to be on those charismatic experiences. Just, but it's subtle. And it just kind of goes, in some cases, pops over. Um, and it's in the evangelical church too. It's in the Protestant evangelical church where we would find ourselves... You know, evangelicals are all about evangelism. We're about preaching the gospel. But do we really believe that the gospel is sufficient for salvation or not? I don't know if we do. We always want to add an and. You know, in the, the early part of the, the middle of the 20th century, it was the gospel and altar calls. You know, you've got to preach the gospel. But if you have an altar call, I don't know if people are really going to be saved because they really need to have that and... You know, it's, 
You've got to have an altar call. Or, or today, you know, maybe that's not so much in vogue, but it's other things. It's the gospel and the church growth movement. I mean, to really get people in here, we, we have to, I mean, yeah, the gospel's important. We all affirm that. But we need some other things too. And you've got to have good parking and good signage. And you've got to have the right mood and the right music and the right lighting in your church because people want to have the right vibe. And, and you know, good marketing and good tools and a good sign out front of your church. You know, and all those things are good, but we just start putting our hope in those things. And they slowly but surely become equal to Scripture, and we stop believing that the gospel is enough. That's what happens. One of the crises in evangelicalism today that's sort of breaking is uh, the whole question of preaching. Is preaching enough? Just preaching God's Word and reading His Word and talking about it. And there's a, a whole segment of evangelicalism that's like, eh, I don't know. You know, the emer- there's some groups in the emerging church way on the fringe that say, no, no, it's, it's outdated, it's too authoritarian, it's too one way, we live in a postmodern culture where people are interactive, so you can't do that anymore. Um, or, or even, pr- probably not as extreme, but others who say, yeah, I think pre- you know, the Bible's enough, we need to have preaching, but we need something else. Because we live in a visual culture. And, and we watch movies and MTV, and so people, they can't just listen to somebody talk about the Bible. They can't just have the Bible read to them. You know, we need pictures, and so we need movie clips playing, you know, as illustrations. Or we need drama, or we need some big thing up on the stage that's a big uh, object lesson that we keep going back to. And, I don't know, I just hear all that stuff, and I'm like, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And I'm a Generation Xer who was raised on movies and raised on MTV and raised on VH1. And, you know. But I'm like, what is it that has changed my life? It wasn't movie clips. It wasn't even Lord of the Rings, believe it or not. As much as <laughs> It wasn't Star Wars as much as I love Star Wars. <laughs> what has changed my life? It was the Word of God. The most profound experiences of my life of God's presence were listening to sermons. And it was like God's Word changed me. And reading my Bible on my own or some person just saying, hey Jeremy, you know, remember what it says and they quote some verse at me offhand and they don't know that that verse was like, boom, into my heart. And it was the Word of God in all of its different manifestations and the ways it's used. Do a little thought experiment with me. Let's do a thought experiment. What would we need, what's the bare minimum that we need to be an effective, biblical, authentic church? What's the bare minimum? What could we get rid of and still be the church? We could get rid of this building. I wouldn't want to. Especially in New England, it's nice to have a warm place to meet. But we technically don't need it. You know, We could put on parkas and go stand in the parking lot and still be the church. Can get rid of all the Bible studies, Sunday schools, men's groups, women's groups, elderly groups, singles groups, couples groups. I don't want to because they're very effective in their ways of communicating God's word, but you could get rid of them and still be the church. We could get rid of PowerPoint, instruments, hymnals, and still be the church, effectively and biblically. I hate to even say this, but you could get rid of paid staff. <laughs> I don't think you can get rid of pastors because as I look <laughs> as I look in the New Testament and the New Testament teaches biblical churches have pastor elders but you don't need you don't need paid pastors that's right In fact you ever heard of the Plymouth Brethren Church Plymouth Brethren's been around for years they don't have paid pastors in most cases they just have elders who lead and every you know Sunday someone else goes up to preach you know you don't need a lot of things to be the church we could get rid of a lot of it. I'm not saying we should. 
But what I'm saying is, to be the church, what you need is a group of people who love each other and are committed to each other as a family and they're drawn together around Jesus and His Word and they gather regularly to be strengthened by His Word. As the Protestant reformers said when asked what is a true church across the board, the Protestant reformers said, they said, is it a church where the Word of God is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered? That's it. You know, where, where the church is centered around God's Word and it's ordered according to the Bible. That's all you need for a church. And that's a true church. You know, we look out at the South Shore of Boston and we're so freaked out. We're like, oh man, you know, it's so secular and people don't believe in God and even people who go to church are just kind of nominal in their faith and they all think I'm a weirdo because I'm a Christian and I read my Bible and... You know, I don't get invited to parties. And how can we ever reach the word, of, you know, the South Shore of Boston? I mean, we're we're so helpless. We're so few. There's not enough churches. There's not enough people. I mean, we just have to hunker down and retreat into our bunkers because we don't have the resources. We got the resource. It's enough. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Romans 1, 16. It's enough. You know, so when you're in your workplace and you're talking to this person who's just going through the ringer of life and they're like, I'm depressed, I have no hope. Or when you're at school and you're talking to your friend and they're like, you know, oh, my parents are getting divorced and I just, I think I'm going to, you know, lose it all, I'm just so freaked out, or whatever, you're talking to people who are having a hard time in life, you can do this. I can do this. We can say, you know, this may sound funny, but what do you think about getting together with me a couple times to just to read the Bible together? You know? And you're saying, oh, I, I can't do that. I haven't been to seminary. No, no, no. It's not the Bible and seminary. It's just the Bible. Anyone here can sit down and read the Bible with someone else. I'd say, you know, I, I, hey, I know that sounds kind of weird. I don't want you to think I'm a religious freak, but this is what's made all the difference for me. And maybe, have you ever read it? No, not really. Why don't you try it? You've tried everything else. Why don't you try this? I just sit down and read the Bible with someone. Have lunch with somebody. I just open the Bible. Anyone here can do that. That is how we're going to see the tra- South Shore Boston transformed. As you taking the all-sufficient Word of God into your hearts and your lives, and you bring it to the South Shore and to the people that you love, not to push it down their throats, not to beat them over the head, but just in love saying, you know what, this is what's made all the difference to me. Some of you know one of my uh, great heroes of the faith was George Whitfield. I love reading about George Whitfield. He was an evangelist in the 18th century, 1700s, and uh, one of the most powerful preachers ever in the history of the church. I mean, he, he brought through God, used him to bring people to the Lord in England, in America. I mean, just a massive ministry that was just profound in his uh, life. And uh, anyway, he had a real impact in the city in England called the city of Bristol. And there was a group of people there who were not happy about it. There were a group of young men who called themselves the Hellfire Club. And uh, I don't know, you can imagine what their club was all about with that name. You know, they were just about partying and being wild. And, and they tried, wherever they went, whenever Whit- Whitfield came to town, they tried to disrupt his meetings and they would mock him and they would stand on the street corners and make fun of him and they'd go to the tavern and get hammered and make fun of all that stuff. 
So one night at the tavern, they, uh, they got their hands on a copy of one of Whitfield's sermons. And all the Hellfire Club was gathered around. And one of the guys there was named Thorpe, Mr. Thorpe. And he had a gift for imitating people. You know, people who are really funny, they can imitate other people. And he gets really good at it. So he got the sermon, and they're like, do a Whitfield imitation, do a Whitfield imitation. So he took the sermon, and Whitfield was a little bit cross-eyed. Actually, you look at paintings, so he kind of crossed his eyes. And, he, and Whitfield was, uh, actually had been an actor. He'd done some drama before he became a believer. So he was very dramatic, you know, and really could speak dramatically. And so this guy starts, he gets Whitfield's sermon and kind of crosses his eyes a little and starts, oh, you know, and starts preaching Whitfield's sermon and everyone's, you know, dying, laughing and busting up. And in the middle of the sermon, he stopped. And he sat down. Because in that instant, through the Word of God in the sermon, he was convicted and converted. And the sermon ended. Thorpe became a believer. Even as he mocked the Word of God. <laughs> you just can't keep it down. And God said, alright, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Opened his heart. You know, that's the power of God's Word. I said, don't worry if we get mocked. Who cares? It's God's Word. You can't stop it. You can kill us. You can mock us. You can take away our freedoms as Americans. But you can't stop the Word of God. It is sufficient. Sufficient for whatever you're going through right now, whatever you are facing that you feel completely obliterated by, this Word is sufficient. And it's sufficient for preaching the Gospel to the South Shore. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You because You love us so much. And God, You give us everything we need. You're such a good Father. Jesus, You are such a perfect Savior. Holy Spirit, You are such a comforter. And thank You for Your Word, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is tried and true. And God, I just thank You for the promises we have. Lord, I ask Your forgiveness this morning for how often I disregard Your Word and seek refuge in other things. How often I try to add to Your Word. God, I just pray for this uh, church this morning that we would be a church founded on Your Word. I pray for anyone here who still has questions about whether or not you're real, whether any of this is real. God, I pray that you would just cause them to open up the book and see for themselves. And that, Lord, you would talk to their hearts just as you talk to my heart and to Thorpe and to everyone else you talk to through your Bible. And so, Lord, use us, bless us, give us faith in the sufficiency of your word in all things. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please take the hymnal and turn to number 408, number 408, How Firm a Foundation. When you found that, would you please stand and let's take comfort and strength and refuge in the word of the Lord. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. i
Sally would love to pray with you. They're going to be over here in the alcove. If you'd like just prayer for anything, come on up. They'll pray for you confidentially. And uh, just introduce yourselves and let them uh, stand with you in prayer. And now, Heavenly Father, I pray you just send us out full of confidence and grace, full of confidence in your word, Lord, to a world that has just, for all intents and purposes, given up on meaning and truth in any way. And help us, Lord, to just go forward demonstrating the truth of your word in our lives, showing, Lord, that it works and that it's real. And God, use us this week to open up your word to someone else. Lord, give us more guts to speak out for you. Give us more confidence, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.